in-depth journalism is more important than ever in a complicated, chaotic time. That's why we listen to NPR's Throughline. This is a podcast that appeals to us on so many levels. As history buffs, we love their historical contextualization of important ongoing issues. As storytellers, we love the engaging way they approach and often humanize complicated tales. As news consumers who want to stay informed, we love the way they give the story behind the big stories of the day. We try to take a similar approach on the murder sheet, and we feel confident that our listeners would enjoy giving NPR's Throughline a try. We've been going through their entire backlog recently, listening to them as we drive to source meetings. One favorite of mine was their episode about Andrew Johnson's impeachment. Throughline's coverage didn't disappoint, delving in depth into one of history's worst U.S. presidents. They also did an episode which is rather pertinent to our work, and that was the one they did about the proliferation of conspiracy theories and how they've always been part of America's DNA. That's something I think about quite a lot, given the creep of misinformation and manipulation in online true crime spaces. NPR's Throughline is a source we trust. They're all about nuance and depth and unpacking the messiness behind outwardly simple stories. Go back in time. Learn something new. Emerge more knowledgeable about today's headlines. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder, including the murder of children, as well as violence and child sexual abuse. So there have been a couple of interesting developments in the Delphi case since the last time we've spoken about it. I think the first thing that comes to mind that's gotten an awful lot of attention has been a report that the Delphi murders of Liberty German and Abigail Williams may actually be somehow related to another murder that had taken place some years earlier in Kentucky. And also, in addition to that, there's been a small development in the ongoing case of Kagan Klein. There was a witness and exhibit list released in that case today, and we're going to talk about all of that stuff today. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. 
We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet. And this is the Delphi Murders, the Stevenson case, and the witnesses against Kegan Klein. So one thing that has, for reasons we'll get into, gotten the internet abuzz with chatter regarding Delphi is the purported link between the Delphi murders, the 2017 murders of Liberty German and Abigail Williams, and a 2011 case of an elderly couple that was murdered in Kentucky. Before we get into what we found out about that and kind of discuss it, Let's just talk about the Stevenson murders. So Bill and Peggy Stevenson were a couple. They were both 74 years old, living in Boone County, Kentucky. On May 29th, 2011, they were both found bludgeoned and stabbed to death in their home. This is an awful case. It remains unsolved. It is currently being actively investigated by the Boone County Sheriff's Office cold case unit, specifically by Detective Coy Cox. Many of you, if you're not aware of this situation, are probably wondering, what does that have to do with Delphi? Because obviously there's some pretty important differences that come to mind when you're looking at this. You have an elderly couple versus two young girls, two teenagers. Libby was 14, Abby was 13. So certainly different types of victims here. You have a large distance between these two places. Boone County, Kentucky is actually over three hours away from Carroll County, Indiana. And then the setting is also different. The couple was murdered in their own home. Libby and Abby were abducted from the Monon High Bridge while they were walking there outside and murdered in a wooded area. So already you can see that there's some, there's some differences here, obviously. There's also a few similarities. You have in both cases a double homicide, in addition to that, one notable thing is in the Ron Logan affidavit that the murder sheet published about a year ago, it noted that there was the presence of staging at the Delphi crime scene. We don't know what that means. It's not clear. All we know is that FBI agent Nicole Robertson wrote in the probable cause affidavit for searching Ron Logan's property that the bodies were staged. We have no idea what that means, what that looks like. But apparently there was also staging in the Stevenson case. Again, no idea what that looks like. It's not been released. It shouldn't be released because it's probably important to keep that information back so you don't get false confessions. So how do these cases end up getting linked? Well, 
there was an interview recently between Detective Coy Cox and Fox 19, the local Fox affiliate in that area. Now, I think it's probably best because this article from Fox 19 has gotten sort of aggregated and synthesized and boiled down so much across the media landscape. I think it would be helpful to just read the portion of the Fox 19 article that actually deals with Delphi so we can actually see what they're saying and see what Detective Cox was initially saying. Because it's become like the old party game of telephone. You may have played this game in elementary school. I know we did it sometimes in my classes where everyone in the class sits in a circle a sentence or a message is given to one person who repeats it to the person next to him. And it goes all the way around the room. And then by the time it reaches the end of the circle, it's repeated. And it turns out to be hugely different from the initial message because human beings tend to simplify things, tend to confuse things, especially when there's nuances. And also draw connections where none exist. So for all of these reasons, I think it's important to go back to the original report. In November 2022, a tip led them to Indiana. We received some information from an individual regarding the Delphi murders in Indiana, and they had said, for all of these reasons, we believe it may be the same person that was involved in the Stevenson case, Cox said. Right away, detectives say they started looking into a possible connection between Bill and Peggy's 2011 murder and the murder of Abby Williams and Libby German in Delphi, Indiana in 2017. There's things that will make you really interested in a case, simply more than just somebody saying, hey, we think this person might have been involved. But we had a little piece of information that really made that case specifically interesting to us, Cox said. The information pointed Boone County investigators towards a specific person who had a specific item they were interested in. I'm not going to tell you about what that item was, Cox said. We've recently been in the northern part of Indiana investigating this guy, following him around, looking for things, collecting all of the information and evidence that we would need to at least vet him as best we could with our case. He was cooperative. We were able to go down that path with him, and he articulated good reason to why that item may have existed. Cox said they sent what they found to Indiana State Police, since that is the agency handling Abby and Libby's murder case. To be clear, Cox says their investigation into a potential link between the two cases did not include Richard Allen. When Boone County detectives were in Delphi, Allen was already in jail, where he has been since October 22, accused in the murders of Abby and Libby. We received information from Indiana as it related to some persons, and we forwarded that to them. We did not send them the information that led them to Richard Allen. We sent them information that may have had some parallel consistencies with where they are with that case right now, Cox said. I know that sounds a little cloak and dagger, but I'm just sorry about that. We're not getting farther with that. Okay. What does that mean? What does that mean? So it means that in a wider article about the Stevenson case, a separate case, the detective is noting that basically they got a tip and it led them to Delphi. Okay. And they looked into it. So that is newsworthy. I'm not going to fault them for reporting that. And it's interesting because that's a high profile case and you want to you want to look look into that. But what I'm reading, what I'm reading in these quotes is that 
This has nothing to do with Richard Allen, the person who has been arrested in the Delphi murders. This is a completely new avenue. Cox is very clear. Our information did not lead to Richard Allen. Our information did not lead to his arrest. And frankly, I don't think that this would be phrased in this way if it was led to, like, you know, Richard Allen's best friend. They're making it pretty explicit. This has nothing to do with Richard Allen. So that's one thing. I'll also note that they're talking about this all happening in November of 2022, which, of course, is after Richard Allen's arrest, which was at the end of October of that year. That also kind of rules out some other names in the Delphi case, in my opinion. Ron Logan, by November 2022, he's dead. He's not, he's not cooperating with Detective Cox because he's not around anymore. Kegan Klein is incarcerated. So when Detective Cox is talking about the person being cooperative and also following the guy around, you know, that he's not out and about. He's incarcerated. From our understanding of the case, and I'm going to keep this as vague as possible, we're not hearing that this has anything to do with anybody that has been widely publicly discussed at this point. That's our understanding. So... This is not a situation where this is going to be the thing to link everything together and explain the whole thing. But I can certainly understand why people were intrigued by this link. I think there's a real tendency with folks who follow true crime to want to connect everything because there's something satisfying about it, because there's something comforting about it. If we are dealing with two really horrible people that sort of seems a bit worse than if we're dealing with one guy who's the architect of all the misery in the Midwest. You know, when, oh, okay, there's a serial killer. He's doing all the bad stuff. We can kind of just write it off. And I think the media realizes that there is a lot of interest in Delphi. And so when they're reading this and they're aggregating it, they're not necessarily aggregating all the nuance or the kind of note of, like, this didn't go anywhere. They're aggregating the Delphi link and even kind of getting things wrong in headlines, basically indicating that like authorities are, are, are linking these or it's, it's indicating a link that I think is very premature from what the detective is actually saying in these quotes. But we don't really like to rely on other people's reporting whenever possible. We prefer to do it ourselves. So we actually ended up calling detective Cox himself to get a quote and try to clear some of this up. And here's what he had to say. This is Coy. Hi, Detective Cox. My name's Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. I'm here with my partner, Kevin Greenlee. I'm Hello, sorry sir. to bug you. Um, we sent you an email, too, as well, but I figured I'd just connect over phone. Basically, we've done a lot of extensive reporting on the Delphi murder case, and there's been so much information out on the interwebs, basically, recently, and we just wanted to kind of clear up some things, basically, because... Our understanding from our end is that, you know, you know, I thought your comments to Fox 19 were really nuanced and, and good, but like online rumor mill takes them and says, wow, there's a link, you know? So I was wondering if we could talk to you possibly on the record at some point. Well, I'll make it really quick because I, uh, three minutes, I just got off the phone. I'm three minutes late getting to an 11 o'clock meeting, but I, this may clear it up a little bit. So our statement is, and will always be at this point in time, that we do not see a link at all between the Stevenson and the Delphi murders. We forwarded the information we had 
received in the Stevenson case because we thought it had more to do with the Delphi murders to the Indiana State Police. And so that's kind of where that ended. Now, there was a peripheral piece of information and a tip that came in that we felt it necessary to follow up on as it relates to our case. But that was something that was really, really way out on the peripheral of the tips that we had received. Why do you think people have latched on to this one thing so much and kind of twisted it into something bigger than what you initially said? I think it makes it interesting reporting for, you know, obviously, and it would for you guys as well if I said, oh, yeah, there is a connection. I think that's the thing that they, that the media has played it up, that Boone County detectives are looking into a possible connection between Delphi and Indiana State Police. And at the end of the day, the end of that story is, is that we have not found any connections between the two other than, you know, there are some similarities. There were two people murdered, which is kind of unusual. Typically, murders are one-on-one. They were vulnerable victims. Ours were elderly. Those were younger. And so they kind of tried to connect those things to say, hey, this is this could be connected. So I think that's the answer to your question. It is. And thank you so much. Um, we really appreciate We really appreciate yeah, it, Yeah, thank you. We really do. All, All right. right. You're very welcome. Have a good have, one. Have Bye. Um, bye. So from what he says, it seems pretty clear there doesn't appear to be a link between these two cases. They did not find a link. They looked into it. It was an interesting thing. They obviously felt it had enough merit to check out. So when you're seeing all this flurry of articles basically claiming that there is a link, we would always strongly suggest try to figure out where the initial report came from. Read that because it's going to give you a lot more context. I And to me, reading the initial article, it was pretty clear to me that they didn't find anything. But I can see where there's also ambiguity. And hopefully Detective Cox speaking to us on the record clears that up. Because I really don't think it's helpful to draw connections or to exaggerate connections where there are none or where they're very tenuous or have not led to any conclusive results. In fairness, this report was originally sourced to a specific detective, and it came from a legitimate news site. It wasn't just a social media rumor suggesting there might be a connection. No, and that's why I don't fault the initial article. I fault some of the aggregation that happened later, which basically cut out everything except for the Delphi link, which then when people are reading it, they're understandably thinking, wow, there's a huge Delphi link here because this is what this article is focused on. So it's not... Fox 19's fault, certainly not Detective Cox's fault. And I don't think it's a lot of the reader's fault. I think it's just people are just kind of copying and pasting the portion about Delphi and then writing their own little write-ups about it. And that's completely losing the nuance and the context. And I think when you read the original article, you're thinking, okay, they looked into this, didn't seem to go anywhere, and the guy cooperated and there's no arrest and they're kind of just, you know... I mean, the thing about you have to realize is in most cases, a, a detective is not going to want to publicly clear anybody because that is a strategic mistake in most cases, unless you have an absolute reason to. Even if you're like pretty sure that we can rule this out, it doesn't necessarily benefit the detective to publicly clear somebody. So that would be a pretty extraordinary step if the guy had said, yeah, we, we think the Delphi guy has nothing to do with it. 
Because, I mean, you always might get new information later that changes your mind, and you don't want to give the defense attorney any sort of... Yes, because if they, if a detective comes out and says, we don't think John Doe has anything to do with this, and then they end up getting more information, and they put John Doe on trial, the defense attorney will say, well, you know, you said publicly you didn't think John Doe had anything to do with it. That's kind of interesting. I remember we have a retired detective uh, from a police organization that we've talked with who told us once that the only way you clear John Doe is by convicting John Smith. Yes. And so when people are saying, well, they didn't rule him out, they didn't say they ruled this guy in the Stevenson case out with the Delphi connection, I don't care. I mean, they they, bas- they said they found no link. That's that's as good as you're going to get in most situations. And I think that's a responsible comment from Detective Cox because you don't want to get ahead of your skis. If you're a person at the end of the telephone game and you're just getting Delphi connection, Delphi connection, of course you're going to think that there's a connection. Naturally. And it's getting... So it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And it's not anybody who was excited by this because, again, I can understand that. You want to clear up a bunch of cases at once. I mean, and I mean... The bright side of all of this, in my opinion, is that the Stevenson case has gotten a lot of publicity over it. Hopefully that can lead to some actionable tips. So I commend Detective Cox for speaking out about it. I commend Fox 19 for doing this original report. I thought it was balanced and I thought it was informative. But I think where we all need to be a little bit more skeptical, perhaps, is in some of the media environment beyond the original source. And be looking at that. How are they framing this? You know, is that how the original article framed it? Are they stretching in the headline? Does the headline match the actual facts in the article? And if the answer is no, then it's probably better to just try to go find the original article, read that, get informed, and perhaps give a give a bit of a side eye to anybody stretching what's being reported. Mysteries are at the heart of everything we do here on The Murder Sheet. But sometimes it's more fun to dive into a fictional caper. That's why we love the free-to-download hidden object game, June's Journey. This game is our daily escape from waiting around in line, getting stuck on hold, and just general doldrums. It is great to be able to just knock out a few levels here and there. You'll get to discover your inner sleuth and sharpen your observational skills by finding clues hidden in each level. Plus, It's like dropping straight into your own cozy mystery novel. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective with a nose for trouble. You get to tackle all kinds of bizarre crimes across a series of elegant and memorable locales. Also, you have a side hustle decorating your own island estate. I love that. I bought a swan pond. She really did. Download this game for a built-in work break. It's a great mental health boost that makes you feel accomplished before you get back to tackling whatever task you have at hand. And remember, when you support our advertisers, you're supporting our show. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. 
Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now I think it's time where we can shift to discuss some updates in the upcoming trial of Kegan Klein. And just as a reminder, his jury trial is currently scheduled to begin on May 10th, 2023 in Miami County, Indiana. So earlier today, the prosecution in the case against Kagan Klein filed with uh, the court their list of witnesses and exhibits. And so we'd like to just quickly run through some of this information and discuss what we think it might mean. I'll note that the first several witnesses are affiliated with the Indiana State Police, and I think some of these names you've heard, others you haven't, but we'll try to offer some insight into at least a little bit of it. The first witnesses are David Vito, Indiana State Police, Brian Bunner, Indiana State Police, Christopher Cecil, Indiana State Police, Tracy Kunstak, Indiana State Police, Josh Maller, Indiana State Police, Jason Page, Indiana State Police, Brian Harshman, Indiana State Police. The next witness listed is Jeremy Clinton, U.S. Marshal. He is the Deputy Clinton who took part in the interview of Kagan Klein back in August of 2020. And, of course, we released a transcript of that. And, of course, his partner in that was David Vito, the first name on the witness list. Then we have two names from the FBI. The first name is Nicole Robertson. You'll remember that she is the one that wrote the search warrant affidavit for the Logan search that we released last year. She also works in the FBI extensively on issues related to child sexual exploitation. The next name on the list is Andrew Willman, also from the FBI. He has testified in court that he has specialized training in recognition of online exploitation of children, as well as investigation and evidence collection. And I'm quoting there from a petition that was filed with the Supreme Court in the case of John Thomas versus the United States of America. He also did some work regarding cell phones, especially locations of cell phones. And of course, as we all know, that may prove to be relevant in this case as well. The next name is Tiffany Hostetler. She is with the Miami County Sheriff's Department. And of course, at the time of the offenses, Kagan Klein lived in Miami County. Sorry in advance if we butchered any of those names. And then another name is Tara L. Holleran, MD. She is a pediatrician who works with child abuse issues. I think it's easy for us to imagine how the testimony she offers could be relevant to this sad case. The next name, things get a little bit interesting there. The next name is Barbara McDonald from CNN and Headline News. 
Yes. So this is really interesting, although perhaps not entirely surprising, given that Barbara McDonald's interview with Kagan Klein from December 2021 was included as an exhibit that we uncovered last year, essentially. That was posted online briefly in error. It was meant to be sent to the defense as part of discovery. So that means basically that the prosecution may have wanted to use some information in that in the trial. And in fact, to skip ahead briefly in the exhibit list, it says that they may include as an exhibit any document or evidence provided in discovery. The transcript of her interview with Kagan Klein was provided in discovery. So it's possible that if they're intending to use information from that transcript, they need to have her come and testify to verify that that transcript is accurate. Yes. And so this indicates to us, at least, that something in the interview that Barbara McDonald did with Kagan Klein is considered relevant for his prosecution. And that's very interesting. You don't always see that. That's a bit of speculation, but it's it fits with the facts as we have them. Because why else would they ask her to come in as a witness? So it's worth taking a quick look back at that transcript to try to figure out what is it that's in there that they may want to use. And we'll also link to our old episode on this where we discussed the transcript. I believe we read it verbatim just to refresh your memory if you want to follow that along a bit more closely. One thing that jumps out at me from looking at the transcript of that interview is that at one point, Kagan Klein basically admits that he created the Anthony Schatz account. Yeah, so that seems like it would be relevant. McDonald asks him, why did you create the profile? And he doesn't deny creating it. He even says that his middle name is Anthony. So he's answering a question about why he named it what he did. Now, there is a bit of a wrinkle to that, right, Kevin? Because an interview done with a media representative is not exactly the same as going out and testifying in court. Yeah, this interview was not sworn. In other words, before he talked to Barbara McDonald, he did not swear on a Bible to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So if he lied in this interview, that wouldn't be considered perjury. And, and why does that matter in the context of its usefulness in a court of law? Generally speaking, a lot more weight is given to sworn statements, because if you make a statement under penalty of perjury, you have a stronger motivation to tell the truth. But essentially, is it fair to say that even if it's not a sworn statement, it's still potentially interesting for a prosecutor and they may want to include it in their case? Yeah, because it reveals something about the character of the person who's telling the story, how his mind works. And it's certainly revealing an inconsistency, right? If he's telling the cops there's something, I didn't create this, and then he's saying, oh, yeah, I mean, basically, then that's an inconsistency and a jury might want to hear that. Yes. There's something else that's interesting in that interview is I was rereading it before we started recording there's a moment in the transcript, you might recall, where Kagan discusses having an interview or a talk with a female on the evening of the search of his home, and this female encouraging him to admit that he has a problem with his obsession with child sex images and that he should 
try to solve that problem. Kagan says he he will, and he tells the woman that he will delete everything he has, and she supposedly encourages him to do that, even though that would constitute obstruction of justice. That story never seemed credible to most people, but it's worth noting that in this transcript, he says, he identifies the woman, basically. He says the woman is someone whose first name is Tracy and whose last name begins with a K. And, of course, one of the witnesses in this case is Tracy Kunstack from the Indiana State Police. So I wouldn't be surprised if one of the reasons she is on that list is to testify that the story Kagan tells about that incident is a lie. And in the August 2020 interview between Detective Vito, Deputy Clinton, and Kagan, they basically tell him there's no way a law enforcement officer told you to destroy evidence. And and Kagan is very insistent. No, no, no. This is, you know, this is my plan for treatment or whatever. And I think it's interesting that this is coming full circle. We're finally seeing maybe some answers come about of questions people may have had from that transcript and from the Barbara McDonald interview. Now, one interesting thing is that a lot of people, I believe there has been a good amount of speculation about the identity of the female law enforcement official who Kagan is referencing in that conversation, essentially. For some reason, a lot of people seem to be grasping with the idea that it is a woman named Kathy Shanks because she was thanked on stage by Doug Carter at the press conference announcing Richard Allen's arrest. And that doesn't appear to be the case. It appears to be this Tracy Kunstack. Yes, now, if you go back and reread the transcript as we did earlier today, as I mentioned, another thing that I think will jump out at you is that Kagan really says a lot of, shall we say, unflattering things about his father. Jerry Anthony or Tony Klein. Jerry Anthony or Tony Klein. And so it is interesting to note that Jerry Anthony Klein's name appears on this witness list. And I know behind the scenes, Tony Klein has indicated he feels that the whole story about him is not being told. And so if he's of the opinion that his son lied about him, it would appear that this would give him the chance to tell his side of the story. Yes. And so we could actually see a possible face-off between father and son in the courtroom over this case, which would be very interesting to say the least. This is a situation where you can actually see the development over time in August, 2020, when Vito and Clinton are interviewing Kagan Klein, he says some pretty unflattering things about his father and their relationship. He's, he's not, he's not going that far with it though, even though there's some indications of problems in the Barbara McDonald interview, she's actually explicitly asking him, do you think your dad would be involved in Delphi? And he's saying no, but he is walking up to a line. And he's talking about a number of unflattering things about his dad and their relationship. So it's interesting over time, he sort of seems to be going from one story to more negative on his dad. And now we could actually see his dad come out in trial and say, no, here's my side of it. I'm going to push back on this. So I'll be very interested to see that and what what develops from it. And to be clear, we don't know if Tony Klein is a cooperating witness. We don't know if he's been subpoenaed. 
We don't have any details about that. All we have literally is his name on this witness list. So to draw that out, and this goes for all of the names on this witness list, maybe with the exception of law enforcement officials, if a person is listed here, it doesn't necessarily mean that they want to be listed or that they've come to the prosecutor and said, hey, I want to testify. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. They're there because the prosecutor believes they have some sort of information that would assist in the prosecution of Kagan Klein. Okay. So it doesn't mean that they have to be on board or willing. It just means that the prosecution says we need these people. Yes. Okay. That's interesting. Uh, there is also on the witness list, they're going to have a representative from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Can you talk about that? So this is a nonprofit organization that was established by the United States Congress. And basically, it is tasked with dealing with cases of human trafficking, child abuse, missing children. And it's basically supposed to act as this resource for different factions in cases like that. So I'm talking about parents of children in a, in a bad situation or who are missing. I'm talking about law enforcement. It's, it basically gathers resources, gathers people with expertise in those cases and seeks to provide them in cases where that becomes relevant. And in this case, what Kagan Klein is accused of is basically having all these child sexual abuse materials. So that is a subject and subject matter that somebody from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children is going to be very much well-versed in, most likely, and be able to speak to all the intricacies of that. So obviously the investigators looking into this are going to be able to provide the granular detail of what happened in this case, but somebody from an organization like that could maybe fill in some gaps or kind of be able to put this in some sort of context for a jury. And then there, uh, the next witness listed is just listed as juvenile. We could speculate that this is likely someone who was personally affected by the uh, crimes of Kagan Klein. Yeah, it's very tragic, very upsetting. Then there's a couple of people listed who are friends socially with Kagan Klein. Or were friends at one time. The final name on the list is Vincent Kowalski. You may not be super familiar with that name, but you're probably familiar with his picture. Vincent Kowalski is the Alaskan trooper whose image and pictures Kagan Klein used to create the Anthony Schatz profile. And so I imagine that Mr. Kowalski is basically going to come down and testify this was not done with my consent. He basically stole my identity. And I just, I mean, think about that situation. You realize that images that you post on the internet of yourself were used to, you know, allegedly exploit and lure in underage children to a online predator situation. That's got to be a really upsetting and horrifying thing to, to deal with on top of everything. So I, I imagine that the jury will be interested in hearing from that person's perspective, especially because we do know that there is an, a chart. One of the charges in Kagan Klein's case deals with essentially online digital identity theft. So obviously Kagan Klein's case is, is directly intertwined with the Delphi case, right? He was strongly looked at. His father was looked at by authorities. 
where does that stand with the arrest of Richard Allen? We don't really know, but I actually think that this trial might be a great opportunity to maybe clear up some of those questions or to get at, do authorities still feel that these cases are directly linked? Or is this a situation where there may be some coincidence at at play? Or how does this change our thinking? I mean, we will be very much looking forward to the trial to get to find out some of those answers, essentially. Trial is currently scheduled for May. Right now, since they're releasing the witness list, it would appear to be full speed ahead. But of course, anyone who has followed this case is well aware that this trial has been delayed many, many times before. And it would not be surprising if it got delayed again. The next hearing in the case, I believe, is currently scheduled for March 30th. And of course, we will be there. If it happens. If it happens. Well, that sort of is the end of the witness list and I think the end of our episode. Thanks to everybody who requested that we look into the Stevenson case. We really appreciate your suggestions. And we will keep you posted if there are further developments in the Delphi case going forward. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet Discussion Group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.